Ahoy! It's your boy. And welcome to episode nine of the podcast. Uh, yeah, actually, to be, I gotta be honest, we're actually re-recording this episode. So, full disclosure, this is a re-recorded episode of, of episode nine. Um, you'll hear a similar preface at the beginning of episode 11, I believe. Maybe 12. I think it's 11, actually. Um, but yeah, I recorded the full episode and I spent, you know, 75% of the time talking about, um, talking about something. And, uh, I since thought about it and even talked about it with some people in my inner circle. And, uh, and, uh, I think we all agreed that for the sake of the privacy of this other person, um, it should be deleted. So rather than like just delete that part, uh, I re-recorded this whole episode, um, episode 11. Uh, there's enough good stuff there that I could still cut out that one bit of conversation and still have a good episode. But, uh, this one, um, figured we'll just re-record it all together. Um, mother fuck, dude. I thought I could go a whole episode without yawning. And of course I start the episode off yawning. Um, if you want to connect with me online, you can find my socials at this is M X O X O. And you can subscribe to the podcast at Apple podcasts, Spotify, Google play and stitcher. Uh, it's called This Is M. Just search it and subscribe. And, um, yeah, what's going on? Uh, I think the first thing I'm thinking about is my brother actually texted me today. Uh, he recently did one of those 23andMe or Ancestry things. Um, he literally found one at work. He, it, I guess it's called a Spit Kit, uh, which is actually a great name for an indie band, by the way. Spit Kit. Um uh, apparently he found one at work and decided to to do it and uh my brother and I are identical twins so uh he asked me do you want me to uh jesus fuck man all right another thing i got to be honest i literally just woke up from uh like a 2 hour nap uh i you know i worked super late last night uh i had to stay i had a quiz in chemistry this morning which uh, I had to finish preparing for, so I was up to like 3 a.m. I literally slept on on my sofa for like four hours without even like, you know, uh, going to bed. I just slept on my sofa for four hours. Took the quiz. Stayed for most of the lecture. God, so sorry. I know. I know. I know, folks. It's really bad. I, I, you know, I try to make light of it because... because I don't know what else to do about it, honestly. But I know, look, even when I go back and listen listen to these episodes after they air, and I hear myself yawning, I yawn. You know, I'm sort of walking around going through my life, and I hear myself yawning, and I yawn too. Uh, let's try to reframe it instead of being an embarrassing thing for me. Let's try to think it's a way for us to connect. Dude, we're actually biologically connecting. We're not just, dude, you're not just drinking me in with your ears. We're biologically connecting. I'm yawning, you're yawning. We're sympathetic, we're connecting. This is the podcast that reaches out and actually touches you on your innards. Sounds so violating. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, oh, dude, here comes another one. <sighs> Deal with it. Oh, man. It's kind of cathartic in its, in its own way. You know, the French, like, a, they call the sneeze is like a little death. It's like an orgasm or something like that. I wonder what the, I wonder what a yawn is. I was literally thinking it's probably like having a bowel movement, but, uh, I was actually thinking, I'm surprised at how scatological this podcast has been. 
we've talked a lot about fecal matter, <laughs> which is strange, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'm a little tired. Um, came home, um, I, did I do any work? Um, I, I think I, I don't know. I looked at some homework, but then I, I laid down very quickly. Dear. <laughs> Maybe I should just start singing through the yawning, but, um, did some homework and then basically was like, you know what? I got to sleep for a couple hours if I'm going to work tonight because your boy has to work until midnight again. So, um, so yeah, so I'm, I, I woke up, I was fine, piddled around for about 20 minutes and then fired up the mic. So man, I'm still coming back online, I guess. Um, but also as I was getting my glass of water before I sat down here and uh, I should hydrate as we speak. Dude, <laughs> do you guys ever watch ASMR stuff? Some dude at work was asking me about that, and I was like, "Yeah, isn't that the weird, like, pseudo-sexual stuff that like teenage girls will like have those like hi- hypersensitive mics and and then they just whisper, and then they just whisper into the microphone." Yeah, you can't tell me that stuff's not sexual. Very disturbing and creepy too. Some people find it relaxing, not me. That stuff makes me nervous. I literally saw like 30 seconds of that one time and I was like, wow, I'm palpably uncomfortable now. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the kind of shit that like someone would find so sexual, me drinking into the microphone. Yeah, I'll be curious to hear what that sounds like on playback. Um, but uh, yeah, what was I talking about? I don't know. I'm sure I missed something in there, but uh, um, um, I was talking about my brother finding the spit kit. So he texted me today, and uh, it's none of your business what I am, but uh, I had a hunch about what we were, and I was partly correct, but there was also a pleasant surprise in there as well. So I'm sorry I brought something up. There was going to be absolutely no reveal for her, but uh, I don't want you knowing who I am and what I'm about and where I'm from, where my people are from. I will say, though, you know, I'm such a, maybe I'm just a Scrooge. Maybe this goes back to me being a contrarian, which I sort of talk about. But um, when my brother first told me he was doing it, I told him, and this has been my stance for a while. Like, I don't want to know. Don't tell me. Um, I'm sure maybe a psychiatrist or therapist would have something to say about this. Maybe it has to do with being adopted. (sighs) Which I am. Um, Which is why I think my brother wanted to do it. Um, my brother and I are both adopted and, um, I mean, so there's two things we don't really have any experience of. I mean, when I, when people ask, you know, it gets confusing, but when people ask me about my mom and dad, my mom and dad are the people who raised me. Now, of course I have a biological mother and father somewhere. Um, and it's not a slight against them. They're just not my mom and dad. Um, you know, m- most people, I don't know. It probably has to do with attachment or whatever, but um, you know, most people consider their parents the people who raised them. You know, if you had biological parents who died young or, you know, the state took you away from them and you were raised by your grandparents or by relative strangers, um, you know, the, that's your mom and dad. You know, that's who, it's who we're, we're, for better or worse, who were bonded to uh, and who, who weaned us, who cared for us. So, yeah, my mom and dad are the people who raised me. Uh, but, yeah, so there's... But, 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 Still, I'm sure you understand what I mean when, you know, most people have an experience when they're growing up where they look at their parents and think, wow, I came from these people. 
you know, like I am the sum product of their their biology coming together and I was what was created. So I've never had that experience. You know, I've never looked at my mom and been like, wow, I was in your belly for nine months. So how cool that you and I are connected in this, wow, profound biological way. So I've never had that. And also people put a lot of stock in their ancestry, you know, and where their people are from. And I've, I've, I've just never understood that. I've always thought of it as a gift being adopted in that sense. You know, I always thought, and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm worried that I come across, across as like xenophobic when I say this, but I've always like thought it was like a lot of mispl- misplaced pride when people talked about their cultural heritage or where their people are from. I, I don't know. I, I've, I've just always, I mean, I, I guess I can understand if you, if you want to carry on the rituals or... Um, you know, you want to observe the history of your people or, um, I don't know, maybe even take some sort of pride in that, but it's always felt somewhat misplaced for me and kind of confused. It it just seemed like an arbitrary thing to put a lot of investment into that, um, that, um, I don't know if, if you want to actually quantify, it doesn't have too great an effect on your life currently. And, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, you tell someone, hey, dude, you're kind of a dick. And they say, well, I have a Latin temper. It's like, oh, okay. Or, uh, you know, I t- one time told someone that they had a fucking attitude problem. And they're like, what do, you, well, what do you want me to do? It's part of my Italian heritage. And I was like, oh, okay. But even good things. It's like, well, what does that have You know, people can be proud of their culture. It's like, okay, but what does that have to do with you in your life now? How does that influence you today? So... um yeah, so I don't know. For so for whatever reason, I had my own protest when my brother was like, hey, I'm doing this thing. You want me to tell you about it? I was like, no, I don't want to know. <laughs> um, and I don't know. that. Maybe that sounds totally crazy to you guys, but that, that, that felt healthy to me to not want to know. Um, now I do know, and it, of course it makes no difference. Um, my girlfriend was telling me about someone that she knows who, you know, you know, but when you get this thing back, basically if you're like most white people, you're like 75% like just white English, uh, whatever British descent. And then you're like a tapestry with some other things. Um, and then you also have like trace roots, which from, I think most people go back to Africa. (laughs) Right. Um, but, um, yeah, the fact that people put so much stock into like the three percent, you know, people do these ancestry things and they go, "I am three percent Spanish," and you're like, "Okay, well, what does that mean exactly?" Uh, I, to me, I don't know. To me, it doesn't mean much. You know, my girlfriend's family is from uh, of of Asian descent, and uh, it, it's actually something that's sort of counterintuitive because people think white people invented racism. But sometimes people in Asian cultures, they're very interested in being pure-blooded. <laughs> and uh, I guess, you know, if your family is, uh, you know, of Korean descent and you find out you have, uh, uh, you know, uh, more than a little bit of Chinese in your ancestry, it's something of a scandal, <laughs> which is weird. Maybe it's just the United States because the white people are in the majority. You know, we, a lot of time racism and prejudice in this country gets talked about like white people invented it, but uh, not true in my experience. <laughs> not that uh, minorities don't experience uh, um, 
the majority of the racism in this country, but, you know, uh, of course, as a concept, white people did not invent racism. Woo! Wow! I didn't think we were going to talk about race so much. So, yeah. I don't know. I think, I forget what episode we were talking about this on now, now that I'm sort of jumping back and forth between the present and the future, as far as the podcast goes, but... Yeah, I was talking about one episode. You know, there's certain things that you say as a white dude and people treat you as an incel. This is probably one of them. So, yeah, a lot of people unsubscribing today. Um, who knows? Maybe it would have been better to just keep the original episode. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that is about me that I that I put so little stock in... In... Uh, in uh, I don't know, in people's history. I, it, it, for me, that feels healthy. I, it just seems like an arbitrary thing to sort of like, um, I don't know, like tribalism? I don't know if that's the word I'm thinking. I don't know if that's what I mean by it, but it's just, a, it's just uh, I don't know. If we want to talk about unity or whatever, it's like just, you know, just, just be whoever you are today. You know, defining yourself by the, the history of your people or your ancestors. I don't know. I guess I have two minds about it, right? Like I, I obviously there's something valuable about maintaining your culture and carrying on the traditions and observance. You know, I think that's important. I actually think it's something that's, that's like, you know, really missing in, in like our society today. So it's weird. I mean, I think one of the, one of the greatest ills that we have, even in America is we don't, (laughs) now you, now I really start sounding xenophobic, but, uh, I do think that our society uh, suffers because we don't have a uniform culture and we don't have uniform ritual ritual observances or maybe i shouldn't say that we suffer but i think one of one of the reasons that there's so much conflict within our our society and culture is that um we don't have uh, uniform rituals and cultural values um it's just that i think that's just a recipe for conflict um of, of course you know we um you know, we actually benefit from having, you know, whatever the melting pot or whatever the fuck people want to call it. But, um, yeah, being able to be exposed to so many different cultures and perspectives and worldviews is, is obviously, um, broadening or whatever it's, 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 I don't know, consciousness raising, but, uh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, if you're living in a small minority of people and you're able to just sort of have a uniform, um, I don't know, value system, system of ritual and observance, you know, obviously there's, there's going to be a lot less, uh, a lot less uh, internal conflict. <clears throat> anyway. Yeah, I literally don't know what I'm talking about. Although this is exactly the kind of topic, like someone who was going to like UC Berkeley, who was like majoring this topic. Like if I was at a party and they were actually expounding on it for any length of time, I would just like be rolling my eyes like, oh, Jesus Christ. Uh. When you you live out in the Bay Area, of course, I mean, you experience that all the time. You're at like house parties and people are talking about these things as if they're experts on it. And you know, like they're currently enrolled in a class on this topic. (laughs) Dude, have you seen this scene from Goodwill Hunting? Or have you seen Goodwill Hunting at all? It's a great movie. Um, it's a really good movie, actually. It's actually surprising because it was like the first film. Dude, was it? Di- no, it was directed by Gus Van Sant. It was written, I think, by Ben Affleck and um, and Matt Damon, maybe Casey Affleck as well. But it was like those guys, like they had written the movie, 
Gus Van Sant directed it, and it did incredibly well. And even as a screenplay, it's pretty mature for like young filmmakers. Um, and it has some sort of tropey stuff in it, but overall, it's actually it's kind of an insightful movie, actually, um, about what's limiting this person. I, I guess it's sort of interesting as a movie because you have this incredibly talented kid, and it's although he comes from he, he's disadvantaged. It's not society that's holding him back. It's himself. And in a very realistic way, which is, you know, he can't control where he's from. So he's, he's a product of his environment. It's not his fault he's the way he is. But really the point of Goodwill Hunting is that it's his responsibility, ultimately, what his life is going to be. And I think that's a really, that you know, that movie would not get made today. Or if it would, it would be completely different. You'd have producers sort of making it a completely different story about how there's no place for this person in society and he doesn't get a fair shake. But really it kind of touches on a lot of the way the world is, which is, you know, he's talented, which kind of in some ways makes him... um makes him uh, a target for ambitious people, like the professor who, you know, he becomes like a uh, a pupil of or, or a, who's a mentor to him, who really is kind of using this kid for his own gain. Um, and ultimately, it kind of has a similar um, thrust to the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer. I don't know if that's come up. Uh, I, feel like it, I feel like it has come up on the podcast, but that's a movie I really love. Searching for Bobby Fischer is the perfect example of a movie that should have been awful, but is incredible. And the reason it's incredible is because of the production design, which is, it's beautifully shot. It takes chess very seriously. Um, and uh, the casting and the acting is phenomenal. It's one of the rare times where you have a child actor in the lead who does an incredible job. And, uh, and the choices of the actors, they really take on paper when you just hear the movie. Like, if you were to just turn the movie off and hear it, it's horribly written. The writing is terrible. There's so many cliches in it. But the way the, the, the choices of the actors and the way they choose to deliver lines and the way the movie's shot and the way it's directed. And, uh, and um, God, you start sounding like a blowhard when you say this, but like the honor that they pay to chess make it a, a serious movie. And it's, it's, it's actually that movie that I saw as a kid, well, one, I think it defined a lot of my life in general, um, but uh, gave me an interest in chess. Because when you when you take something and you present it that artfully and take it that seriously, it just it's going to have a, a profound psychological effect. I mean, in some ways, I think Karate Kid was that way. Um, you know, there were sort of fun kung fu movies where you see people fighting, but Karate Kid, I think, really tried to um, take karate very seriously and present you know, some of the philosophical ideas behind karate and how it can inform your life that I think was influential. I think that's why most people, or a lot of kids who saw Karate Kid wanted to do karate. And I think a lot, the reason a lot of kids who saw Searching for Bobby Fischer wanted to start playing chess um, is because it was presented so seriously, not just as a fun thing, but as a, but as a serious thing. Um, and I think if you present things that way, it's actually more influential than just showing how fun it is or whatever. Um... But uh, where am I going with this? Uh, yeah, the thrust of Searching for Bobby Fischer is you have this phenomenally talented kid who could be, a, and it's a true story, more or less. The, the core of the story is true. Um, Josh Waitzkin is the chess player, who's an incredibly promising chess player. And I think he's actually the subject of a documentary as well. I think it's called Chess Kids. And he's one of a couple um, you know, promising chess 
prodigies who are sort of featured in this documentary. I think you could find it on YouTube. Um, but Josh Waitzkin is the central character and he's a very promising chess player and people are saying, Oh, he could be the next Bobby Fisher. And of course there's a few kids like that, you know, promising chess prodigies and the pressure that's put on chess kids to, I don't know, um, really fulfill the ambitions of the adults in their lives. And the mom in searching for Bobby Fisher, um, her character is she's just trying to preserve the best parts of her son, which is he's a good kid. Yeah, he's this phenomenal chess player, but she wants him to have fun. She wants him to have a childhood. She wants him to, you know, experience the things that a kid is supposed to experience. And uh, there's this tension between what his talent is, what he's capable of, and this X factor of what does he want? What does he want to do? And uh, it's it's just a great it's it's a it's a great story for film, and um, and they present it really well. And so again, so yeah, so on paper the screen the script for Searching for Bobby Fisher is awful, but it actually is an incredible movie. It's very '90s, but it's incredible. I if you I, you probably find it on Amazon or something like that. Um, but Goodwill Hunting is sort of the same thing, um, where you have this person who comes from kind of a rough background, and so. Um, while they have the, the talent, they're brilliant. While they have the talent to become successful, they don't really have the constitution to be successful. They've had a traumatic childhood. They're self-defeating. Um, you know, they're really standing in their own way. And it's not that it's their fault. You know, they're not just a masochistic person. This is what happens when you're traumatic. You know, they have a fear of failure. Uh, or, if, you know, when people talk about, or, or maybe a fear of success, rather. P- you know, people have an intrinsic fear of success. Um... So that's what that's what uh, the character in Goodwill Hunting is. But ultimately, it's a very adult story about the therapist who's trying to help him, you know, coping with the realities of life, you know, um, the loss of their own wife, and not being as quote successful in life as um, you know their old colleague who's taken this person on as who's become a mentor to this person, and really that battle between. Uh, you know, what does this person want for themselves? And the therapist is trying to um, get um, Matt Damon, Will, I guess, his, I guess his name is Will Hunting, get Will to consider, which is what do you want to do with your life? You know, you can be, you can follow in the footsteps of this mentor of yours and be successful, but if it's going to be at the cost of this relationship, that could be, that could change your life. Um you know, what's it really worth? And, um, yeah, anyway, it's just a very deep movie. And why did I get on all that? <laughs> why did I get on all that top on that topic? Who knows? Um, yeah, but it's a great movie. A lot of great scenes in Goodwill Hunting too. Yeah. It's a, it's the kind of movie that, you know, you think about it often and searching for Bobby Fisher, but yeah, both those movies, I, and especially searching for Bobby Fisher were really influential on me. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of structure growing up and there were not a lot of adults in my life telling me what to aspire to. And I think because I was sort of raised on film so much, I, I, I saw movies like Searching for Bobby Fisher and I either decided or it was just impressed upon me like, oh, I want to be like this person. Like this is my archetype. This is the hero that I'm going to try to become, which is just the good person. <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, it, it, I mean, it's fine, but there was a, there, but there, it, I guess I'm trying to articulate that there was something sort of performative about it too. Like I just wanted to be a good person, 
you know, and I wanted to be recognized and celebrated as a good person. I mean, I remember going away to summer camp one year and it was my birthday and my dad came to visit around that time and had like brought me a cake and we were sharing it with everybody in my cabin. And I remember there just wasn't enough cake to go around and one person was going to be out a slice. And I just said, oh, well, he can have, uh, he can have my slice. And I remember my counselor looking at me and thinking, how did you get to be so good? And even in that moment, knowing that really the only reason I was doing it is because it was the good thing to do. Does that make sense? Not because I was genuinely compelled to do it, you know, as a sort of higher ideal, but because I knew it's what a good person would do and that's who I wanted to be. But, but more than that, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be uh, celebrated for or recognized for or loved for. Like, I'm trying to say that I was, I was ultimately doing it for myself. Do you know what I mean? Almost like a religious person, like a priest or a nun or something doing something, not because they're genuinely moved to, but because they know that that's what, that's what their station in life demands. Do you know? So yeah, I don't know if that sounds, I don't know if it sounds like a good thing or a bad thing, but, um, I don't know. People talk about this all the time. Like, excuse me, people talk about like, you know, what is altruism? You know, can you really do something for selfless reasons? And and maybe people do like in a moment, they jump in front of a bullet or um, who knows? They do these experiments and I'm, I might butcher it, but what I'm thinking about now is they do these altruism experiments back when these things were, were not looked down upon, but now it's, it's probably unethical. But I thought I had heard about these experiments where they have like a chimpanzee or something with its baby and they place it in this sort of cage or this this room where there's a floor that they can slowly heat. And they say, as you heat the floor, without exception, eventually the mother puts their baby under them and stands on it to keep their feet from burning or something like that. You know, and I, I don't know, I think they're trying to explore if there is altruism in nature. You know, will the mother ever just suffer and hold the baby above the floor? But I think without exception, the point of the experiment was that, you know, eventually everyone stands on the baby. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so spooky when you hear stories from the Holocaust. Like, you know, they would drop bread into these train cars as they were taking people to the to the concentration camps and people were just killing each other. You know, people were just like killing their own children or, you know, and just, just truly disturbing stuff. Um, there's this video, I forget what it's called actually. It actually came up recently. My neighbors had this, um, this party, uh, the other weekend when I was coming home from the studio, there was just a bunch of people in the backyard and, uh, I was talking to one of the people and they were talking about this documentary called Life in a Day, which is a YouTube documentary where they just had everyone shoot, uh, they, well, they asked, you know, everyone to shoot their day on this one day in particular and they just were going to edit it together and show what life around the world was like in one day. And it happened to fall on the day where there was this festival in Germany. I think it was like a, like a techno electronic EDM, whatever festival. And, uh, it happened to fall on this day and a truly horrific thing happened at this festival, which is, um, as people were exiting, they were exiting through this tunnel and, uh, thousands and thousands of people just sort of walking through this tunnel and for whatever reason, it gets jammed. You know, there's just so many people pushing through and it just, people get, uh, people just get clogged in there and people start to panic. And as people start to panic, you can see video of this on YouTube. It's truly disturbing. Um, 
people just start panicking and fighting and like people are like clawing their way out of the tunnel and it's it's just truly disturbing it's the type of thing that if you were actually involved in it um just one of those primal things where you literally see people become animals and uh you know, it just shows you there's such a thin veneer between like society functioning and society not functioning and in self-interest and, and, uh, and, uh, I mean, it's like what every apocalyptic movie tries to explore, right? Which is when resources are truly scarce, who do people become? You know, the road. I don't know. Have you guys seen that movie or read that book? You know, there's roving bands of cannibals. There's no food. So what do you do? Do you live as an outsider? Or do you join the pack and hunt other people, you know? Um, um, yeah, very disturbing. And and in a way, um, and I, I think it's actually going to be, it's, it probably is episode 11. But in a couple episodes, I talk about the films of Ruben Oslin, the dude who did Force Majeure and The Square. And that's kind of what Force Majeure is about. Um, you know, it's about, uh, there's, uh, uh, there's an avalanche, and uh, a dad, uh, you know, there's a family on a ski vacation, there's an avalanche. And uh, in the wake of this disaster where people think this avalanche is going to plunge into the lodge where everybody's outside sitting eating, the father just grabs his phone and runs, runs away from his family. And the catastrophe is averted, but there's this moment where the dad has to like walk back to his family and everyone's painfully aware that in a moment of crisis, he ran away from them. And uh, the rest of the movie is just dealing with the tension of, of this experience and the, and the dad not being able to admit that this is what happened. And it doesn't really sound like there's a movie there, but it's it's incredible movie. It's, it's, an, it's an incredible movie. But, um, but as they talk through this in the film and other people hear the story and they try to rationalize this person's behavior, a lot of people offer this idea. Well, nobody really knows who they are until these sorts of crises happen. You know, and people do all sorts of things in those types of moments that aren't don't necessarily define who they are. Um, but is that true, or is that just rational? Is, is that just rationalizing? Because I think I, everyone thinks they're the type of person that when when um, when the catastrophe happens, that they're going to be the hero, that they're going to rise to the occasion. But who knows? Who knows what you're capable of when you're truly desperate? I mean. I talked about running, you know, um, and, and being completely dehydrated. And I literally felt like my brain not functioning. You know, I literally felt like I just wasn't functioning as a normal person. And if that was a really a life or death situation, I mean, maybe what made that, um, uh, endurable is knowing like, yeah, this may, I may feel fucking miserable and I actually, I feel sick, but I also know intellectually, I'm just a half a mile away from home where there's plenty of, there's a faucet of water and, and I'll be fine. And I can lay down and rest and, and recuperate. Um, but if I was on the desert, who knows what I would do? You know, if it's me and somebody else and I see like, you know, we stumble on a bottle of water. I mean, who knows if I kill that person or not so I can have the water to myself. Um, wow, dude, it's so heart of darkness over here. We're really plumbing the depths of, of uh, I don't know. We're talking about a lot of taboos today. This is an episode all about taboo. As I say that, dude, I'm thinking my friend, um, um, maybe I shouldn't say their name, but I had a friend uh, growing up when I was living in Arizona who loved this, uh, there was like a female duo, I don't know what country they were from, they were called Taboo, T-A-B-U, they were like some pop girl group duo from some foreign country, they had this sort of lesbian chic vibe, and uh, yeah, he was really into them, I don't know. 
but he was also into things like Degrassi and anime, and so not nerdy interests. I, I don't even know what the word for it exactly would be, but he had a. Uh, he's probably he'll probably listen to this episode eventually, honestly. But <laughs> but so he'll know who I'm talking. He he'll know I'm talking about him. But yeah, not nerdy. Um, I don't know niche. Maybe that's more the word for it. He also was obsessed. I think he was obsessed with this like Asian pop group. I can't remember their name. But uh, anyway, interesting kid <laughs> who has a podcast himself now. I love that guy though. Now married, has a kid, beautiful baby. Married a great woman and uh, got to see them recently when they were visiting. It's so funny who people become. You know, I don't know how old you are um, as you're listening to this, but, you know, if you're in your mid-30s, you know what I'm talking about, which is, you know, you hang out with these people when you're younger and, you know, sometimes the people who are the craziest party animals become, you know, the the, the most, I don't know, temper, or tempered adults, you know, and people who seem to be on the right track and have everything going for them you know, they, things, it just doesn't work out that way. There's a saying I love, it's never count a man lucky until you see his death. Which, uh, I don't know, it's a sobering thing to think about, right? Count no man lucky until you see his death. Which is, you may think life is great, but let's see how you die. I mean, when you think of it, dude, well, we are getting dark on this episode, but when you think about it, the overwhelmingly vast majority of life on this planet dies in, uh, their death is, is agonizing and it's, it's a moment full of fear and terror. Like if you're just getting eaten by stuff, you know, or you're dying of an infection or you're dying in childbirth for, for most life forms on this planet, sentient life forms, uh, self-aware life forms, whatever you want to call it the last moments of their existence are, are terror, painful, uh, terrifying and confusing. I mean, I've talked about this with a lot of people, but most recently with my girlfriend, which is if you're in a plane crash, if you're flying on a commercial flight and all of a sudden it starts plummeting to earth, I, I don't know. As I just, when I think about that, I think there has, has to be about 30 seconds where you're literally adjusting or you're thinking, is this real? Is this my reality? Or when you're in the tunnel at this German EDM festival and people start clawing at each other and you realize, and you feel, you feel the, the energy spill over into this heretofore unexperienced territory that you had heard about, that you knew existed, that happened to people. It's now happening to you and reality or whatever, for lack of a better word, you're sort of, it it like hits you like a bucket of water. This is my present. This is my reality. This is what I'm dealing with now. There just has to be this moment of incredulousness. You know, 9-11, you're just at your office one day and a plane flies into your building. And you're thinking, oh, this, you know, there's jet fuel burning everywhere and you're like running down flights of stairs. You know what I mean? It's just, it, there's something absurd about it almost. Or if you're on the ground floor and you're seeing people literally jump out of windows and you see the, the towers come down, it's like you can't believe this is really happening. I mean, I'm sure it's this confusing moment of both hyper-focus and also almost like a dreamlike state. Or like imagine you're in a school shooting. You're just in the cafeteria and all of a sudden enters with, with a weapon or at a movie theater and someone opens fire. And of course, you just start acting on instinct, self-preservation. You start running for the doors or, 
So you just, you know, you're acting on impulse and, and you're just sort of living in the moment. But there has to be a part of you where that's just, this is absolutely fucking surreal, you know? Um, and only when it's over or, you know, hopefully you make it to safety, you know, you start thinking, holy shit. I mean, I've had, I've had kind of similar moments. I mean, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of the, the, I think the one time I saw somebody in genuine shock, um, I was playing the show at this venue in San Francisco at a place called the Hotel Utah. I was playing there in the evening and I was here in the East Bay and I parked in front of my place. I had run some sort of errand and I parked in front of my place um, there's a main street, there's a side street I parked on. I was right on the intersection. And, um, there was actually a fatal, I mean, this is, it's, it's just a horrible intersection where people try to cross this main thoroughfare from the side street. And, um, and people get in accidents all the time there. And I'm parked right on the corner. I close my car door. I take about 10 steps away from my vehicle. And the minute my foot reaches the curb, I hear a, a crash behind me. And I turn around and uh, you're not going to be able to picture this, I don't think. But basically, a car right behind me had been T-boned at full speed. The car flipped on its side. And the car that had struck it basically pushed it into the front of my car on its side. Does that make sense? The car is pinned on its side between the car that struck it and now the front of my car. And I'm the type of person when, when things like this happen, I actually stay very calm. Um, and I just dropped my backpack. I ran over to the car and the driver of the car that got struck is crawling out of the driver's side window. And she's just has this look in her eyes. Like I've never seen before. Her eyes were wide her. She was just shaking and she was kind of breathing and couldn't speak for about a minute and a half. You know, I helped her get to the curb and sit down and she just, she couldn't even speak. She wasn't like hysterically crying it was just like uh, there was a short circuit in her brain temporarily. And I think she was just genuinely in, in shock. Um, I mean, I had a moment when one night, you know, I work late, I was walking home from work and um, I'm pretty close to home and uh, I'm walking kind of down this dark street that's sort of dimly lit. Um, and about, hmm, I don't know, a hundred feet in front of me, is this major intersection and I see two dogs turn the corner and I like dogs. You know, I've never seen a dog and thought, Oh, I need to get away from it. You know, I'm always like, Oh, I want to pet dogs and all that sort of shit. There was something about these two dogs and it wasn't that they were ferocious. They looked too anxious. There was just something about the way their head was just on a swivel and they were sniffing wildly. I just, I sort of stopped in my tracks and the minute they turn the corner, one of them looks up at me and instantaneously, the, the very moment its eyes land on me, it starts barking in a way I can't even communicate to you, but it was, uh, it wasn't terrifying in that I felt terror, but it was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. The dog literally just as violently as you can imagine, just starts going and sprints at me. And you've seen dogs lope and you've seen them chase a ball. But have you ever seen a dog dart at something? Like literally its head lowers, its feet move faster than you can fucking imagine, and it darts at you. And I didn't even have time to do anything, but I do remember thinking, oh, really? (laughs) My first thought was really, oh, really? This is happening? And before the dog reached me, I thought, oh, I'm about to get mauled by a dog. Like, oh, this is my reality now. I'm, I'm just about to get mauled. Oh, this is happening now. 
and thankfully the dog doesn't like jump. It basically goes for my ankle. And for whatever reason, I'm able, and I feel it like trying to latch onto my ankle. I'm, I'm just able to move it fast enough where it's not getting me. And thankfully there was no cars coming because without even thinking, I literally leaped or leapt into traffic. Like I, I realized before I, I mean, I looked up and realized, oh, I'm in the middle of the street and thankfully there was no cars coming. I would have been fucking hit, but, um, it's like grabbing at me and, and barking and like just almost catching my jeans. And, and there was a split moment where it took one break, you know, and without even thinking about it, I just leaned back and the minute it came at me again I kicked it in the face as hard as I could and it was disturbing it's like you know that scene in the movies where like some guy goes to jail for the first time and the and the big dude comes up to him and says like give me your cornbread <laughs> or some shit like that and the guy's like all right here's my moment I got to punch this guy and show everyone who's you know they always say in movies like you know you got to fight someone on your first day in prison and that scene where like they punch the dude as hard as they can and their head like turns to the side and they slowly bring it back and you're like, oh shit. I kicked this dog as hard as I've ever kicked anything in my life and it landed perfectly. It felt, it didn't even hurt my foot. It felt phenomenal. I hit it right like under the jaw, connected. Like, it, dude, if I was fucking punting, it would have fucking gone through the fucking, um, uh, yeah, I'm dumb. I don't know sports. What's it called in football? The field goal. I don't know, do you just call it the field goal? Is that what it's fucking called? I don't fucking know. You know, the raised bars, the, you know, the fucking thing. <laughs> um, it was a perfect kick, and uh, it had almost no effect on the animal. And uh, there was also, at that exact moment, a, a car was coming down the street, and I jumped out of the way, and I mean, you know, it saw me, it wasn't like about to hit me, but it didn't, <laughs> didn't really stop either. But like I jumped into the oncoming lane and the car passed between me and the dog. I'm, I, I got on the curb on the opposite side of the street and for whatever reason it was just enough that car passing between us was punctuation enough for that dog to decide that, hey, I had backed up, I had left and I, I don't know, I guess he didn't perceive me as a threat anymore. He was still barking at me but thankfully he didn't cross the street to come at me a second time. And dude, thankfully that other dog didn't get involved. I mean, when I think about it now, I think that other dog just watched on like, thankfully, he wasn't like, oh, shit, I'm going to jump in here, too. But that was, I mean, that was a moment where in the moment, when it happened, I was very clear, you know, and it, and it it sounds like I did it every, I did everything I needed to do to, to preserve myself, and it just happened to work out in my favor. But I'm talking about that moment where as it's happening, that, that change from uh, your everyday experience to what your new reality is, that sort of incredulousness, that moment of, oh, really? oh, this is what's happening? Disturbing. And thankfully, it hasn't been anything worse yet. But, I mean, the same, th- same thing's got to be true for, like, a car accident, fatal car accident. You know, you're sitting there, dying slowly. I don't know, man. I don't, I don't want to get too morbid, but, um, but you can imagine. I mean, this is the kind of shit that when you really think about it, like, my buddy Ned Buzzkirk has this group here in San Francisco called You're Going to Die. And uh, it sounds kind of morbid, but it's it's for him. It's actually supposed to be a like a creative space for people to talk about death and dying in in a meaningful way. Because make no mistake, you're gonna die. And uh, and uh, it's just a way to, to to talk about it and to try to you know you know what's the Latin phrase you know remember death. 
Memento Mori or whatever the fuck people say. You know, that realizing that you're going to die can actually be a call to meaning making in your life rather than just fear. And, um, and, uh, yeah, where is it going with this? Uh, oh, but you know, we go through our life and we don't really think about our death. And I think part of it is we're biologically wired that way. You know, we, you know, if we really were able to absorb all the terrors of the world constantly, we would never be able to function, you know, so we compartmentalize these things. We don't think about them. We find uh, ever ingenious ways to sort of uh, convince ourselves that, you know, I, I, there's this author, Stephen Jenkinson, and we'll, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I really want to get into this now, but um, at some point I'm sure we'll talk about death and dying more. But there's this author I really like named Stephen Jenkinson. He wrote a book called Die Wise, is sort of his major book. He has a new book called Come of Age, which I, I haven't read yet. I own it. He, I have a signed copy by him. I haven't, haven't read it. And, but I've seen him speak a couple times. And he, he, he writes about death and dying in a way that I think is, is really poignant. Um, I've recommended him to a lot of people, and some people find him a little tiresome. His tone is a little breathy and not new agey. It's a little ponderous is probably the, probably the best word for it. But I also think it's very interesting. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. He talks about death as a, as, a, as a call to meaning-making in your life. But he also talks about this idea like, you know, everybody says that they know they're going to die. But that's not true. Everybody knows that everybody else is going to die. But few people actually live in the knowledge that they themselves are going to die. And if they did, it would, it would, uh, it would uh, influence their behavior in profound ways. You know, that, in fact, their lives might be better for it. Um, but um, these are the types of things, because we don't think about it, you know, when I think about it, and even as I'm talking about it, I'm not fully absorbing what I'm saying, but it happens sometimes like when, you know, if you've been high and you've had like a bad experience, it's because a lot of times it's because you feel your brain go down the rabbit hole. you like, you feel your brain grow to encompass a concept that you have previously thought about it, but now you feel like you're seeing it in its totality for the first time. And you're so overwhelmed by the truth of it you think either you've broken your brain or you have no idea how you're going to return to your life as normal. And part of you, part of you knows that you're high and if you just went to sleep, you'll wake up and feel better. But there's all, I think that's what people talk about. I've never done like psychedelics and stuff, but I have had sort of consciousness raising, consciousness raising experiences when I've been high on weed, um, which is you really feel your brain grow to encompass a concept that you just sort of live with every day that you feel like, oh, I, I hadn't really looked at it until now. And wow, now that I see the truth of it, how can I go back to my life the way the way I've been living it? And of course you, you do. You sober up and you just go about your life as normal. But there's a living thing that's non-substance induced that happens sometimes too, which is you very rarely, you feel with absolute certainty the inevitability of your own death. You know, you think, it hits you like a bucket of water and you're just like, oh dude, I'm going to die one day. I will die one day. Not death as a sort of abstract concept, but you think every moment of my life is marching towards death and one day I'm going to die and I'll be, I will be standing on the brink of the known in the unknown. I mean, this is the whole to be or not to be speech from Macbeth. or Sorry, from Hamlet. Um, you know, this thought experiment into the unknown. What's, what's beyond the veil? What's, um, you know, the, the, that sleep of sleep or whatever, what dreams may come, that sort of thing. 
or you think, wow, what does eternity feel like of nothingness? When I return to the same unknown space I may or may not have occupied, you know, for, for millennia, for literally the entire existence of the cosmos before I was born, when Caesar crossed the Rubicon is the, is the example I always use. But, you know, wherever I was when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, I'm going to return to that place. Um, that existence, whatever, conscious or not, sentient or not, whatever that is, you're going to return to that. And everything that you're looking at and thinking about and care about today will mean nothing. Um, there are moments in your life where it hits you like a bucket of water and it's like you panic. You feel your heart rate increase where, you know, the veil has dropped away, right? And you're sort of staring that truth, not a conceptual truth, a literal truth. And in fact, it's like the only real truth you have in life, right? You're staring that truth in the face and it's like you can't tolerate it. You know, it's those times when, when, you know, when you think about infinity or whatever, you literally feel your brain at the, at the literal brink of what it's capable of understanding. The, the literal fringe of, under, of not just understanding, but knowledge. You, it's, it's that, that mystery that you can't, you literally just can't see past. Um, and it's terrifying for like 30 seconds. And then you go back to watching Game of Thrones or whatever. <laughs> Then your Uber Eats shows up and they brought you your McDonald's supersize meal and you stuff your face. <clears throat> or you just go back to smoking weed or whatever you're doing. But yeah, dude, truth hits you sometimes. Whew. Heavy stuff. Super heavy stuff. And it's funny, I mean, even as I'm talking about it, you know, my, it's like my mind doesn't go there. I think about it. I know I'm dancing around it, but, you know, it's not even hitting me now, even as I'm talking about it. It's pretty strange. But yeah, I, I think we got on this whole thing because I was saying for most people, that moment of death is terrifying. It's painful. It's agonizing. It just must be surreal to be like, wow, I've never been in this much pain before. Or like in war. Oh, is that what my innards look like? Wow, I've never seen so much blood. That's mine? And then your life is also slipping away from you. You know? If you're not just in shock, I mean, what, where, does your, where does your mind go to in that moment? Does it all make sense? You know, when, when every fiber of your... You know, they talk about this on... Um, you know, as someone who works on a crisis line and we talk about um, suicide oftentimes, there's this documentary called The Bridge about people who jump off the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, which is apparently, I don't know if it's number one, but it's one of the most sought after places for people to kill themselves. And I think it's some disturbingly high number of people kill themselves on the Golden Gate Bridge every year, which is sort of depressing in and of itself. You know, you want this grand death where you jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, and I think literally hundreds of people do it every year. <laughs> That may be higher than I think, but it's, it's not insignificant. Tons of people do it. And there's a documentary about Golden Gate jumpers. And uh, they talk about this thing. Very few people who've jumped off it have survived. And when they talk to these people after they've lived, you know, they say, well, what did you think? The minute your feet left the ledge, what did you think? And they say, uh, the first thing I thought was I had made a mistake. 
Now, of course, when people hear that, they think it's something like, oh, I was so depressed, and then the minute I was actually faced with death, I realized everything I was dealing with was trivial. Um, that's probably one way to think about it. I bet it's actually just more biological. I mean, I think when you're faced with death, every fiber of your, of your, every cell in your body wants to survive. And so whatever biological thing happens that sort of summons that, you know, con- conscious, conscious experience for you is, is, is what you're feeling. You know, every part of you wants to live. So yeah, of course you're thinking, I want to live. I made a mistake. Um, it's not like your problems disappear, but, um, the, the biological imperative to live sort of takes over. But those last seconds, I mean, how long does it take you to hit the water? Maybe three seconds, maybe three seconds. You're, you're dying in regret and fear and terror. And you see the, the, the water very quickly rising up to meet you. I mean, this is why we talk about like the terrors of the terrible ways of dying. I mean, I was, I've been thinking recently about this ghost ship fire that happened in Oakland. Uh, was it 2013? Maybe 14, 15? There was this warehouse fire. Uh, there was a, it was an illegal living space that happened to be having a party. And uh, I don't know how many people were present at the building. Maybe 50? Um, but they were having a party slash concert or performance, music performance or something like that. And everybody was upstairs. <clears throat> and there was some there was only, there was only like one way up upstairs which was like i guess these like stacked pallets or whatever but basically a fire broke out and i think like a like 13 people maybe more died in this fire um and I actually knew two of the people um they had this band called intro flirt um they were part of this collective of artists that i had sort of spent some time with you know they were doing these either weekly or bi-weekly performances uh, in Berkeley at this really cool performance space that was here for a while. And I had gotten coffee with this guy a few times and um, I still have these like Polaroid photos I took of him both performing and when we were hanging out. And and, uh, they were two of the people who died in this fire. And when I think about that, I just think, you know, what were their last moments like? Like how tragic? You know, you're young. You have your whole life ahead of you. You're relatively young, you know, you're even in your, you know, a lot of these people are in their mid twenties, early thirties. You're young, you're ambitious, you live in the Bay Area, you're cool, you're hipster, you're playing music, you know, you're ambitious, you're idealistic, you want to change the world. And all of a sudden reality happens. You're just in a illegal warehouse, which it was like a cool space for people to be, you know, it was part of their alternative lifestyle. And then a fire happens and there was just no escape for these people. You know, the only escape, I guess there was like one staircase that was obscured that, or, you know, one route downstairs that was obscured or blocked that nobody really knew about. And I think the main way up and down the stairs was these sort of stacked pallets that the minute they they were incinerated, there was just no escape for these people and they all died. And it was uh, incredibly tragic. And the people who owned the building were like put up on like um, involuntary manslaughter and I think everyone was exonerated, but, um, but uh, yeah, tragic. You know, to be to think about someone that you sat across and had coffee from a few times, not knowing. I, I think, and I think this goes back to this idea of like count man, count no man lucky until you see his death. That that knowing that even as you're sitting there laughing with this person over coffee, that their last moments will be spent in terror, inhaling black smoke, and 
Who knows? I, who knows what happened in there? You know, were people clawing for their lives? Were people fighting? Were, you know, were people hugging and holding each other and comforting each other? I mean, who knows? I mean, I'm sure it all happened so fast, but it's just, it's terrifying to think. You know, we don't know what end awaits for us, you know? Um, you know, we all hope that we have a quiet death, a good death, you know, we call it. We want to have a good, decent death. You know, we don't want to die in terror. Like, have you guys seen the, I, I, I love the Sopranos. The Sopranos is one of my favorite shows of all times. And, uh, Chris Moltisanti is uh, one of the characters in the Sopranos. He's like, uh, Tony Soprano's protege or apprentice. I don't know what you want to call him, but in one of the, I think maybe even the pilot episode, there's a scene where someone pulls a gun on him and he ends up shitting his pants. And you think, damn dude, that's not how I want to go. My pants full of poo and afraid. But who knows? Who knows how we'll go? Anyway. Whew. Yeah, we kind of went to some dark places on this episode. Um, not sure what it means exactly. I don't know. I think this stuff's interesting. Yeah. What do you think? Is this stuff to be avoided or is this stuff you, you like talking about? Maybe not all the time, but you know, I don't know. Once a week, have these little powwows and, and, uh, little powwow podcasts to talk about these things. <clears throat> but yeah, that's the kicker. Those, 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 um, boundary moments, like where reality really kicks in and you just think, Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, who knows? That'll probably be the title of this episode. Um, yeah, we've gone on for we've gone on for long enough here. We're almost at an hour, so uh, we'll wrap it up now. Um, you know, I, I hope to keep saying this again because I think it actually got. I think I spent some time talking about this on another episode, and now that it's uh, now that we're re-recording it, I think it got lost. But I actually want to thank uh, the people who've been listening to this regularly. Um, believe it or not, the numbers are actually going up. Not huge, but. Um, you know, we're getting a few more listeners every week. So, you know, if you're tuning in and you're listening regularly, thank you. If you're enjoying it, thank you. Um, and I actually got a couple messages from people. Um, and like I said, I, I record these in advance. And I think actually part of this, part of the episode I deleted was I had gotten some negative feedback about the podcast that was kind of affecting me. And it's not like people heard that and then felt compelled to console me because that episode was never aired. But around it's it's just funny how you get things when you need them because apropos of nothing, completely unsolicited, or like around that time, I had gotten some messages from people who are listening to this podcast, and they said, "You know what I really like about it is that it's like we're just hanging out with you, you know." And I thought that's exactly what I want. You know, I was saying on another episode, my brother turned me on to this podcast, "The Truth About Pam," and it was fine. It was entertaining. It was like a true crime thing, and. And, you know, you listen enough because you want to hear how the story wraps up. But it's not like podcasts I really enjoy that I, like, give myself to where I feel like I have a new friend. And I believe me, I know this is not for everybody. But um, if I happen to be the type of podcast that you enjoy listening to because it's just like we're sitting around shooting the shit, that's that's really what I want, you know. Um, I want a space where I can just sort of talk about the things that I think about and go where we go and not have too much planned and and uh, kind of just check in with each other once a week. 
you know, and if, and if sitting around listening to me talk is entertaining for you, awesome. And, uh, if it's like hanging out with a new friend, you know, I, I, I want that experience that I have when I find a podcast I like where I go, oh yeah, I get excited about it. You know, here's this new personality I enjoy hanging out with, you know? And again, not for everybody, but if that's for you, uh, thank you. And for the people who sent me messages, thank you. Uh, it means a lot. That's exactly like the wind in my sails that I need. Um, cause, uh, like I said, I'm doing a hundred of these babies and, uh, it's easy to say that, but the living experience can be difficult sometimes. You know, the actual sit, it's like, you know, I talk about like running the actual living experience of sitting down and not having anything planned and sitting down and recording these things. It, it can be difficult, you know, but it's rewarding for me. I enjoy doing it. And that some people like listening to it is, I mean, that sort of seals the deal for me. So thanks for letting me know. And thanks for uh, tuning in. Uh, if you want to share this episode with somebody else, or you want you want to share the podcast with somebody else, please do think of, you know, it doesn't have to be everybody. Think of one person in your life that you think would uh, enjoy this and uh, send them your favorite episode. Send them, send them a, a link to the podcast. And, uh, yeah, if you yourself want to subscribe, you can on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. You can connect with me on all my socials at this is M X O X O, and uh, I have new music out. Uh, again, I'm jumping. I'm jumping. Sorry, I punched the mic. I'm jumping back uh, between the past and the and the present. So I don't. I don't. I don't know where we are at exactly, but I certainly have a song called "Crying" out on Spotify now. You can go and check that out. And maybe by the time you hear this, um, I'll be in the studio this week wrapping up on a song called Backbone. And uh, that may or may, may or may not be out by the time you hear this. If it's not, you can look forward to it. If it is, you can stream both those songs in Spotify, my preferred place, or you can, on Apple Music, you can find them basically anywhere you find good digital music. Uh, wherever good digital music is sold and streamed, I say. Um... So yeah, thanks for sitting through this rather dark episode, and we'll do it again soon. Ciao for now. <laughs>